0: plushcare.com Hi
1: everyone, welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the original Stargate film from 1994. I'm not going to lie, I've been quite excited to cover this one, largely because I used to really enjoy this film when I was younger, and it would just be interesting to see if, well, it's still good, if I still enjoy it or not. One quite cool fact about this film is that it has Stuart Tyson Smith as the historical advisor. There's a chance that name might sound familiar to you. You might feel like you've heard it in the back of your mind somewhere. This is likely because he was also the historical advisor on The Mummy and The Mummy Returns as well. Two films which I suppose it's not going to shock anyone. They're two of my favourite films ever. Hardly surprising considering I'm you know, the host of this podcast. One thing I always notice with those films is they're not actually particularly accurate. Um, They do have a few bits here and there, which, um, you know, are nice details. But, I mean, the first one literally starts with a massive pyramid and then it zooms out onto the, the city of Thebes, which, well, never had any major pyramids around it. It's almost like they tried to combine Memphis with Thebes. So, for those who don't know... Memphis is sort of round about where Cairo is today. That's where you would have gotten like the, the Great Pyramid and things like that. A lot of the very, very famous pyramids from the Old Kingdom. But by the same token, there were some parts of the films that were actually really good. Uh, I'd say the main point here would be the, the translations of the hieroglyphs throughout. And also the parts where they were speaking the kind of ancient Egyptian language as well. I mean, don't get me wrong, these weren't perfect. Like I, I feel like you could always tell when Stuart Tyson Smith was on set because there were some parts where the it just felt like the actors were reading the transliteration. But then there were other scenes where it felt like Stuart Tyson Smith may have been there, and he may have just been giving like, you know, hints and tips to the actors to sort of help them speak it correctly. I think it's going to be really interesting to see if we get this same kind of theme in Stargate as well. And I probably should just say, it might sound like in part I might be making fun of Stuart Tyson Smith a little bit here. That's absolutely not the case. I think he's a fantastic Egyptologist. But I think it needs to be remembered that he was the historical advisor here. He had no say in what went into the final product of the film. That was entirely up to the director... And, you know, they were going to ignore him if they felt it would lead to a better film. Anyway, moving on. um, So when it comes to the sort of format of this episode, we shall start by having a look at the historical accuracy of the film. And then I shall just simply review it and rate it out of 10. But before then, as usual, it is time for my dramatic intro. Right, right. You are an Egyptologist with controversial theories, and as such, you are often scorned and mocked by your colleagues. However, it turns out that the right people have noticed your work, and just as you're about to give up, you are given an unusual job. These people lead you to a secret underground base, where an artefact of great importance is stored. You decipher the hieroglyphs on it. You figure out the meaning of the unknown symbols. And as such, you become one of a team to use the artifact to travel across the galaxy. You pass through the Stargate. Okay, so as kind of said a second ago, in this section I'm just going to go over the historical accuracy of the film, saying what it gets right and wrong, and also just using it as a bit of a jumping-off point to talk about interesting things in Egyptology. Near the beginning of the film, we see a symposium talking about the building of the Great Pyramid. One cool thing here is they, they have a board outside of the symposium that says, Fourth Dynasty, Old Kingdom. This is, yeah, fair enough. Um, The 4th dynasty was part of the Old Kingdom, so this consisted of the 3rd to 6th dynasties. And more importantly, the 4th dynasty was when the Great Pyramid of Khufu was built, the very pyramid that this symposium is supposed to be on. So, in general, the 4th dynasty dates from about uh, shortly before 2600 BC, until shortly after 2500 BC, so just over 100 years, maybe between sort of 110-120 years, something along those lines. It's a little bit hard to have exact dates when we go this far back. In general, when it comes to the Great Pyramids, it was built shortly after 2600 BC. We then meet Daniel, our main character, and as my dramatic intro would have, well, kind of indicated he has some pretty controversial claims about the Great Pyramid. Namely, he says that Khufu was not the builder of the Great Pyramid, and that there's no evidence it's a tomb. I mean, well, if we're being incredibly pedantic, and to a point that even annoys myself, yeah, no, he wasn't the builder of the Great Pyramid. He was the king who commissioned it. People built the pyramid for him. But, you know, that's clearly not what um, Daniel's talking about here. And to be honest with you, even I like myself slightly less after making that very picky point. (laughs) When it comes to the idea of it not being a tomb, well, I mean, first of all, there is a massive sarcophagus in the Great Pyramid. I kind of feel like that's, you know, a bit of a telltale sign. Also, there is a mortuary temple really close to the, the Great Pyramid as well. I mean, admittedly, it is quite destroyed, but... We get similar mortuary temples near other pyramids as well. It's, it's definitely a burial place. One of the reasons Daniel says he believes it's not a tomb is because there's absolutely no writing in the Great Pyramid whatsoever. He's not entirely wrong here. There isn't any writing in the Great Pyramid. Though by the same token, you don't tend to get writing at all in pyramids from the 4th dynasty, or even for the majority of the 5th dynasty either. In fact, it's not until the very last pharaoh of the 5th dynasty, King Unas, that you start getting texts in pyramids. He was ruling some 150 years after Khufu. Basically, from the reign of King Unas onwards, we get what are called the Pyramid Texts. These line the burial chamber of the king in the pyramid, and they were designed to sustain the king and help him thrive in the afterlife. They're actually one of the most important religious texts in Egyptian history, and you can see them influencing Egyptian religion for thousands of years after their creation. So, as already kind of indicated, the pyramid texts were only for the king. They were there to help the king sort of get to the afterlife and to survive there. However, when we get to the Middle Kingdom, and even slightly before then, we see these same texts start appearing on coffins as well that could be used by technically anyone. Realistically, they'd have been used by elite individuals. And this basically means that you can sort of see even just normal people in Egypt getting the same kind of afterlife as the king as well. Then, later still, many of these texts start getting written down on scrolls and they appear in the tombs of the New Kingdom as well. These scrolls are something you've almost certainly heard of. The Book of the Dead. So without the pyramid text, you don't get the coffin text, and then you don't get the Book of the Dead. Anyway, getting slightly off topic, I guess. I I quite like this subject. Um, The point is, what Daniel's saying here just is incorrect. The Great Pyramid was most certainly built for King Khufu, and it most certainly was a tomb. And even when it comes to his argument about there being no text in the Great Pyramid, so how can we possibly know what it's being used for? It's a really, really flawed argument. Daniel then goes on to claim that a fully developed writing system appeared all of a sudden in the first two dynasties. In fairness to what he's saying, hieroglyphs did develop incredibly quickly, but they also do have their origins around about 3,250 BC so before the 1st dynasty. There is also some evidence for precursors to writing in, in ancient Egypt. For instance, from a place called Um el karb during the late pre-dynastic period, that's the period just before pharaonic Egypt had started, so just before the 1st dynasty, we start to see quite plain pottery which has ink marks on it. These ink marks form graphic depictions of various animals And they were believed to express the owner's name. So, for instance, let's say you were called Scorpion, you'd have a picture of a scorpion to represent your name, and that's kind of like the beginning part of writing, if you will. Or at least in ancient Egypt, anyway. Though, admittedly, in favour of what Daniel was saying here, we then do see a very big jump in the sophistication of writing. And it does seem to happen quickly without much of a kind of like transition period. There are various theories as to, you know, how this happened. Admittedly, it's hard to go into this this kind of topic without having a lot of speculation because, well, ultimately the evidence just really isn't there, or at least not at the moment. However, one of the more popular theories is that this transition just hasn't survived anymore. You know, it's very likely it was written down on quite perishable material, which just hasn't survived. After all, when it comes to things like papyrus, I believe the oldest papyrus is only about 4,500 years old, so the, the time period we're talking about here is about another 500-600 years earlier than then. Either way, what many consider to be the first proper example of Egyptian writing comes from a tomb labelled Tomb UJ. This tomb can be found at a and basically... In this tomb, there's a number of inscribed labels that have names for sort of produce and things like that. Presumably, they were attached to, you know, they were originally attached to these produce to identify them. But ultimately, when it comes to the film, I can't argue too much with what Daniel is saying here. He is correct. The writing system in ancient Egypt does appear to have appeared quite suddenly. I mean, don't get me wrong... It's quite clear that Daniel here is trying to hint at aliens, you know, having given us some secret knowledge or something like that, which, well, I mean, unsurprisingly, I don't agree with. But at the same time, this is just a film, and it is quite cool that they've at least tried to use some historical basis for this. It's just that they've taken their conclusion in (laughs) quite wild directions. I suppose in terms of a film, it's far more interesting to say aliens did it than well, we've probably just lost the transition period. That is admittedly a lot more boring.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. That's plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. Plushcare.com/slash-weight-loss. Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST.
1: About 10 minutes after this scene, we get our first look at the Stargate. And I will admit, this is quite cool because there's some really interesting stuff here. So first of all, I'm going to go over the part that's a little less accurate. Um, In the centre of the Stargate, we have a cartouche, which has the coordinates to another galaxy written in them, essentially. This isn't how cartouches were used. So, for reference, a cartouche is a depiction of a ring of rope that had the king's name written in it. Putting anything outside of a name in a cartouche just... that just wasn't done. That wasn't how they were used. Right, now that we got that out of the way... Let's start talking about the far more interesting points that can be made here. The hieroglyphs around the outside of the Stargate can be translated. They are a genuine example of hieroglyphs. This can be seen a little bit better when they're written up on a board. So for reference, basically, um, in the film, one of the characters is supposed to have written these on a board and tried to translate them. And in this scene, Daniel basically corrects his translation. And in fairness to him, he does a really good job here. You know, it's really clear that Stuart Tyson Smith has helped in this part. In fact, even before um, Daniel starts translating the hieroglyphs here, he does sort of do a bit of an insider joke. Basically, he looks at the board, he sees the wrong translation, and he just goes, huh, you must have been using Budge to do this. I really don't get why they keep republishing his work. So he's referring to an Egyptologist named Wallace Budge here, who was quite a prolific writer at the end of the 1800s and beginning of the 1900s. First things first, he is correct that people keep republishing his work, but the reason for that's actually pretty obvious. His work is now out of copyright. That's why it gets republished a lot, because anyone can do it and people buy it. But what's quite interesting is when I started doing Egyptology, one of the very first things I was told in uni was to never use Budge. And I probably should stress, they didn't necessarily mean this in a completely literal sense. Um, you can use him, but you've got to use him with extreme caution because, well, he did, well, for several reasons, to be honest. Um, for a start, he did have a habit of making some pretty wild claims that are just outdated now. Um, He basically had a habit of making things sound more interesting than they actually are a lot of the time. And also, I mean, unsurprisingly, just given the time he's writing, a lot of his work now is out of date. We've learned better. And this is especially true when we get to his translations. Because, well, first of all, not only do you get the double whammy here, uh, he's trying to make it sound slightly more interesting than it actually is a lot of the time. But he also does kind of get the wrong end of the stick a few times as well. Ultimately, really the only time you should be using Budge is when you don't have another option. (laughs) But by the same token, considering how prolific he was in terms of writing, those times do occasionally come come along. Sometimes he's the only person who's written on a particular artefact, or he's the only person who's kind of done a sketch of that artefact, so you, you do need to use him in those situations. To give an example of what I mean here, um, I've got two extracts. One of these is from uh, Wallace Budge, and the other is from Faulkner. Both of these are from the same source, so they both come from the Book of the Dead, which is uh, from the Papyrus of Annie. They're both spell 61. And I probably should just say, the reason I've picked this spell, I haven't gone through to find one that's particularly inaccurate or anything like that, The one reason I've picked this is because it's a short extract and I feel like a longer one would be a bit harder to follow in this kind of podcast format. Okay, so first, here's Budge's translation of Spell 61 from The Papyrus of Annie. I, even I am he, who came forth from the water flood, which I make to overflow, and which becometh as mighty as the river Nile. So quite dramatic, a little bit abstract, but okay. Right, so here's Faulkner's version of the same spell. I am he, I am he who came forth from the flood, to whom abundance was given, that I might have the power thereby over the river. So you can kind of see how the beginning for Budge isn't too bad, the wording's a bit different, but the meaning kind of remains the same, but The second half of Budge is a bit more abstract. It's a little bit hard to know what he's saying or what the passage is supposed to be saying. Like, is this supposed to be the person who's speaking who's making the river overflow? Or is it supposed to be something else? Where in the newer version, it's just a bit clearer. And once again, I kind of want to point out, I didn't go out of my way to pick one that was completely wrong or anything like that. I, I probably picked this in about a minute. I just went through the Papyrus of Annie I found a short a short passage, and I looked at both. That, that was my entire process here. I will admit, though, I really wish Budge was a better Egyptologist, largely because, well, to be honest with you, a lot of his books are available for free online, and I think that's one of the reasons they're so popular, because they are incredibly accessible. And the problem with a lot of Egyptology resources, or at least good ones, is that they're either locked away in a library somewhere, or they're incredibly expensive to buy. Either way, they're often not very accessible, and... Well, I do think that's what stops Egyptology from reaching a large audience a lot of the time. You know, I think there's probably a lot of times where people are, like, really eager to get into the subject, but then they just realise it's hard to get into, and it's hard to get into because half the resources aren't accessible. That's actually one of the reasons I even do this podcast. Because this is a free resource that anyone can access, which we need more of. Anyway, um, speaking of free resources, I probably should just say, for this next part where I'm uh, looking over the translation that Daniel's doing for this inscription on the, the board, I'm only going to cover it quite briefly. This is largely because I don't think this is going to work particularly well In the kind of podcast format. However, I have put a link in the description for this episode to a YouTube video uh, by the channel Egyptology Lessons. The guy in this video basically goes over this inscription and he just explains it and I think he does a really good job. So please do check that out if you're interested. I, I, I recommend it. It can be found under the subheading Other Resources in the description for this episode. But like I say, I will go over some parts of this inscription. So to begin with, Daniel changes the first word to Reneput and says that this means years. Yep, he's absolutely correct here. So the word for year is Renepet. And then after this word, we can see three strokes. In um, hieroglyphs, if there's three strokes, it basically turns a word into a plural. Normally, a plural would end with the letter W. However, if the word ends with a T, then the W comes before the T. Hence, here, it's not pronounced Renepetu, it's pronounced Reneput. Normally, when a word in uh, ancient Egyptian ends with a T, it means it's a feminine word. So, for instance, if we were to give an example that's a little bit more clear than um, year, the word for brother is sen, The word for sister is senet. If we are saying brothers, then it would be senu. If we are saying sisters, it would be senut. A little later in this inscription, he notices a Segem and F formula. So to explain this, an N in hieroglyphs normally denotes the word of, whilst an F at the end of a word normally means that it's talking about man. So if we had the word Jed, which means uh, to sort of speak, to tell, and it's followed by the letter F, so it's Jed F, that would mean sort of, you know, something along the lines of he speaks, he tells, that kind of thing. However, if we were then to get Jed N F, that basically means the sentence is talking about a completed action. So that might sound a bit strange considering N means of, but you know, that's just kind of the way the language works. So, Jed-N-F would mean, he spoke, he told. Something along those lines. Where Jed-F would mean, he says, he tells. You know, it's more kind of a present tense. And sedium NFs, that's just the name for the formula. It doesn't always have to refer to a man. So, for instance, you could have uh, Jed-N-E. So, E is a first person. So, it would be, I have said where Jed-E would be I say. I'm going to leave my discussion on the translation there, uh, largely because, like I say, I don't think a podcast is necessarily the best format for this kind of discussion. But like I say, um, please do look up the Egyptology lessons link in the description. I think he does a really good job, and, well, quite frankly, who doesn't want to learn hieroglyphs by using Stargate? That's undeniably a lot of fun. Shortly after this translation... We then get this kind of big military man walk in looking all serious. And it's basically revealed that the Stargate is 10,000 years old, and they say that they know this because of the carbon and sonic dating. In order to carbon date, uh, you need to have organic material. So the Stargate is made of stone, so that's never been alive, so you can't carbon date it. In fairness to the film, I suppose they don't show everything that was discovered alongside the Stargate. So maybe they could have found something in the same layer that is organic. So maybe something that's made of wood because that could then be carbon dated. And then you maybe had to get an estimate of the date. In terms of sonic dating, I'd never heard of this and I had doubts that it was a real thing. In fact, I looked up Sonic dating and immediately was met by many, many examples of Sonic the Hedgehog's dating life. So, um, I'm going to say that's not a thing. In fairness, you do get Sonic testing, which shows imperfection in materials. But as far as I know, this can't be used to show the age of something. At least not that I'm aware of, anyway. A little bit later in the film, after they've passed through the Stargate... We get one scene where Daniel is talking to one of the characters who ends up being his love interest and he's slowly kind of learning the language. I thought this scene was actually really interesting because they quite clearly sort of based it off of the ancient Egyptian language, which, considering the theme of the film, makes a lot of sense. So the example they show here is once again the word Netja. Uh, As I said earlier, Netja means uh, God. In the film, we then find out that they pronounce it Neda. And through this, um, Daniel basically realises that the reason he hasn't been able to understand them is partly because the ancient Egyptian language hasn't been spoken in many, many years, and so we don't exactly know the pronunciation anymore. And also, because we're on another planet, the language will have evolved in a different way. All of this is pretty plausible, to be honest. In terms of the ancient Egyptian language, it is worth noting that when it's written down, it's written without the vowels in the middle of the words. So there is some guesswork as to what vowel goes in between the the continents. One of the best resources we have when it comes to the ancient Egyptian language and how it sounded is actually the Coptic Church, which is basically the um, Egyptian branch of Christianity. So essentially, when Christianity came to Egypt, the ancient Egyptian language was still being spoken to a degree. The Christians there didn't want to use hieroglyphs, as they were a sacred text that was not Christian. You know, they were brought to us by the heathen gods of old, if you (laughs) will. And so what they did instead was they took the Greek alphabet and they started writing the ancient Egyptian language using the Greek alphabet. The first thing to note here is the Greek alphabet does have vowels in it. The second thing to note here is that Coptic is still spoken today. If you go to a Coptic church in Egypt, the services are performed in that language. They're technically performed in the ancient Egyptian language. It is fair to say that this will have changed slightly over time, but it is the best example of what the ancient Egyptian language would have sounded like. Kind of like the way um, the Catholic Church still uses Latin today. Right, I'm just going to finish off this historical accuracy section by looking at a few smaller things that kind of made me smile, I suppose. The first of these is the fact that the, the planet they go to is called Abydos. This is a fun name as, well, Abidos is a city in Egypt. In fact, the capital of the first dynasty of Egypt was Thinis, which... Although the exact location isn't entirely known, it is believed to be in the vicinity of Abydos. The kings of the First Dynasty were also buried in Abydos, so I don't know, that's just a fun little fact. I like that little nod to Egyptian history. Uh, The second and final point I want to bring up here is that Ra is the villain. So Ra is the sun god in ancient Egypt, and Ra... Well, he comes down from the sky in this film, so he's clearly been picked for that reason. Now, obviously, there's a lot of, like, sci-fi and fantasy elements to it that aren't really Egyptian at all, but, again, this is just a nice little nod to Ancient Egypt. So, overall, when it comes to the historical accuracy here, it's an interesting film. I mean, don't get me wrong, this is still very much a film that's been made for entertainment. It does get quite a few bits wrong. But there are also quite a few, like, little insider nods to Egyptologists throughout. Like, for instance, the whole discussion about Budge, or the idea that writing appeared quite suddenly. Those kind of things are actually pretty decent. And I will also admit, the use of the ancient Egyptian writing throughout the film is better than most films I've seen. I I feel that Stuart Tyson Smith did a really good job as the historical advisor here. Don't get me wrong. It's quite clear he wasn't always listened to. But I do think they listened to him more than other films did. I will also say, though, I feel um, the main reason large parts of this film are incorrect is because they've also gone along the conspiracy theory um, route a lot here. It makes sense as to why they've done that. Don't get me wrong. They've done that because this whole film is about aliens and other planets. So, of course, you're going to go down that route but it ultimately does still mean there are inaccuracies here. So I suppose my consensus for this film in terms of historical accuracy would be it's definitely not perfect, but I do think it's better than most films, and I do think it's clear that a lot of effort has gone into making this at least somewhat accurate. Right, so we've now reached the review section of the episode. So here I'm simply going to go over the film, saying what I liked and disliked, and then rate it out of 10 as well. To begin with, the very first thing I noticed in this film was the music. I actually thought it was really good. It's got quite a, you know, like an Egyptian-y fantasy-esque sound to it, and it just creates the correct atmosphere for the film. You know, it got me excited to see what was going to happen. And that's exactly what you want from a soundtrack. I also just felt there were a lot of kind of small details in this film, which showed that quite a lot of care and attention had gone into some aspects of it. So, for instance, at the beginning of the film, which is set in 1928, we see a little girl on a dig picking up an amulet. And then later on, we see one of the characters, Catherine Langford, who's quite an elderly woman, wearing that amulet. You know, it makes it quite clear without anyone having to say anything that she is that little girl now all grown up. It's not necessarily a groundbreaking point, but it's a good little detail and it, it, it kind of goes into the philosophy of showing not telling, which is always a better way of making a film in my opinion. Another nice little detail, one that I've kind of already talked about is the way Daniel joked about Budge. This was a fun little joke that some of the audience would get, others wouldn't, and that's cool. I like that. Again, not necessarily groundbreaking by any means, but it's a small little detail. And as I've said in previous episodes, a lot of small little details can lead to a big difference in a film. I also just felt that Daniel was quite a likeable and, you know, dorky main character. I felt he was quite easy to root for. And this was especially kind of um, effective when some of the soldiers, after they go through the Stargate, start bullying him. When that happens, it's really easy to dislike them. Like, I genuinely felt my blood boil a little bit. In my opinion, this is great. You know, I want to feel some emotion when I'm watching the film. I want to feel sorry for the main character when I'm supposed to feel sorry for him. I want to feel happy when things are working out for him. And I do think that this film achieved that. On top of that, I know this is a technically really small part, but it makes me really happy when I see this guy. Eric Avari's in this film. So, uh, for those who don't know, Eric Avari plays Dr. Terence Bay in The Mummy. I always just get a slight smile on my face when he just shows up in things. Like, he just has a habit of turning up and having small parts in films, and... In my opinion, it always kind of boosts that film just slightly... So in this one, he plays a local leader on the planet of Abidos. I actually found the film to be quite legitimately funny at times as well. So for instance, at one point, uh, Daniel gives Eric Avari's character a, a chocolate bar, and then you basically just watch as Eric Avari freaks out over how good this chocolate bar is. Or in another instance, Daniel gets his leg caught in the harness of this kind of weird alien desert creature, and it drags him along the ground as he kind of screams, and then when it finally comes to a stop, it it basically licks his face and leaves a big sliver of saliva up in. It's quite gross, but it did make me giggle. (laughs) You know, don't get me wrong, I get that humour's quite subjective, but, you know, it worked for me, the humour in this film worked for me. On top of that, I felt the film did a really good job of remaining intriguing, but kind of easy to follow as well. I mean, I got an hour into the film and I was still quite engaged. I still wanted to see what was going to happen. There was still a lot of mystery, so that's really good. I I feel there's a lot of films that fail in that area. In fact, from what I understand, this film almost did because, well, a lot of the cast, when they saw the original script, they, they thought it was horrendous. And even when this film originally went for the initial screenings, The audience were lukewarm at best. This was because they were getting lost as the film was going on. Um, A large part of this was because the character of Ra didn't originally have subtitles, from what I understand. And so one of the things they did when they re-edited it was they just put subtitles underneath. They added a few effects to uh, to Ra as well to make him look a bit more kind of evil and sci-fi-ish. And it just ultimately led to a better film. They, they, they basically did exactly what you're supposed to do after initial screenings don't go well. They went back to the drawing board and they made changes. And those changes seem to have ultimately led to a really good film. So, kudos to them. Because, to be honest with you, it's quite clear there always was a really good idea behind this film. Like, even when you look at the character of Ra and the fact that, well, in the film... Ra initially ruled over Earth, but the idea was that the ancient Egyptians overthrew him and he had to flee to another planet. One of the things that Ra does on this new planet is he bans writing, and he does that because it's basically a way of concealing the truth. You know, without writing, you can't keep records and things like that. That's a really smart plot device. That, 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 that's really cool. I like that a lot once again it shows that a level of thought went into this film now of course so not everything in this film is perfect there are some issues here so for instance I know I've brought this up in the past and it might sound like a really picky point I don't know whether it's just because I you know I moved into a new flat and I'm very aware that there's a thin wall between me and my neighbor but like With many films, and the volume levels are all over the place, the talking is so quiet, and the action is so loud. Don't get me wrong, when I'm sat in the cinema, I enjoy this a lot, it helps me to get immersed into the film. But when I'm at home, having to constantly turn the volume up and down, it takes me out of the film. All they need to do is add an option so that we can turn this off. From what I understand, there is no option. If there is, please, someone tell me, because, well, I will thank you profusely. (laughs) Um, you know, this is an area I will happily be wrong in. To be honest with you, there isn't really much else I disliked about this film. The only thing I can say is, towards the end, sort of after the hour mark, I did get a tiny bit bored. Not like massively so, just a little bit. But realistically, that's about it. What we have here is a film that's very solid, quite funny and intriguing. So if you are like me and you haven't seen this film in many, many years, I do think it is worth re-watching. It does hold up. Overall, I am giving this film an 8 out of 10. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, please do consider liking, subscribing, sharing on social media, leaving a comment. It all really helps the podcast. And join me next time, where we shall be looking at Blood of the Mummy from 2019. I hope you all have a fantastic week, and see you then.